This is Sports Jam. I'm Doug Doyle. Terry Brennan not only played for some of the greatest Notre Dame football teams in history, but he also coached Notre Dame's legendary Heisman Trophy winner and later NFL legend Paul Horning in the 1950s. Terry Brennan followed Frank Leahy as coach of the Fighting Irish in 1954. He's now 93, and with the help of William Miners, has put together a new book. Though the odds be great or small, Notre Dame's 1957 comeback season and the year that changed college football. From Loyola Press. My guest on Sports Jam is Terry Brennan's son. Terry Brennan Jr., who's very responsible for a lot of what's in this book. Thanks for joining us on Sports Jam, Terry. I'm glad to be here, Doug. Thanks for having me. It's a thrill to have you on the show. I think your dad told you at one point, you know, who would want to read a book about me? And he was part of two national championship teams under Frank Leahy. Dependable Terry was a brilliant halfback at Notre Dame for those teams. He intercepted a Glenn Davis pass during a game against the mighty Army squad. And his path is crossed with so many greats of the game, including the golden boy, Paul Horning. <laughs> we also have former Giants defensive back and a running back for your dad, Dick Lynch, who not only mm-hmm. starred with the Giants as a defensive back, but he was also a broadcasting legend for the Giants for so many years. And then your dad had coaches from Notre Dame that he was familiar with, priests and administrators at the university, Father Hesburgh and Joyce and Moose Krause. And your dad also worked with the broadcasting legend himself and his fancy jackets, Lindsey Nelson, who got me interested in Notre Dame football. Montana's throwing. And it's in the end zone. Touchdown. Vegas Ferguson. Vegas Ferguson. Touchdown, Notre Dame. And so <laughs> Lindsey was my introduction to Notre Dame with my father through all those years. Of course, we want to read a book about Terry Brennan. How's your dad doing, by the way? He's doing well. He's a little under the weather, but for 93, he's, uh, he's, he moves, moves well with that walker. He's probably the fastest guy in Chicago on a walker right now, but he's, uh, he's in good health, relatively speaking. He's just a little under the weather as we, hear, as we speak today. I am not surprised to hear you when you say that he moves around fast because not only was he a football star, but at one point he was a track star in high school and even – Notre Dame coaches talked to him about pole vaulting and things like that because he was such an, a great athlete and such a terrific halfback at Notre Dame. Taking the opening kickoff on his own free against Army in 1947, the fleet-footed Brennan was off on a brilliant 97-yard touchdown gallop. The cadets, stunned by the lightning score, went down to defeat before the Irish 27-7. Cheered by Notre Dame students as the new coach of one of the nation's traditional gridiron powers. Brennan, youngest mentor ever picked by a major college, celebrates with his family. The misses, their month-old daughter Denise, and two-year-old son Terrence. Irish eyes are smiling. So this book is really a kind of set-the-record-straight book, isn't it, Terry? I'd say so. That's not a, that's a fair description. It really started with my, my mother, my late mother, must have pestered him for at least 50 years to write about his stay at Notre Dame. And to, to your earlier point, he's a forward-looking guy, not a backward-looking guy. He, he would refer to those years as ancient history. And really what happened when my mother passed away, we discovered a treasure trove of memorabilia that she had kept going back to high school. My wife computerized it all. And we were finding things like a, a 1956 postmortem 
single space, you know, eight or nine page postmortem. We were finding an uh, uh, unfinished handwritten autobiography. So once we read those and locate them, we began to pester them again. And we finally got them to, to finish the project, which is great. Yeah. And at 93, you know, not many people can say that they remember everything that happened in their career, but he had so <laughs> many huge highlights that obviously they are shared in this book. And once again, the name of the book is Though the Odds Be Great or Small, of course, a reference to the, the famous Notre Dame song, Notre Dame's 1957 comeback season and the year that changed college football. Dependable Terry, that's because they counted on him during his years at Notre Dame at halfback. He scored big touchdowns and came up with big plays for the Fighting Irish during the glory years in the 1940s. Yeah, I think Johnny Latner captures it very, or Johnny Lujak rather captures it very well in his forward. Uh, he, he is a very interesting guy to talk to aside from the forward he did. He's a, got a great sense of humor, very humble man for all he's accomplished as well. What a tremendous player he was, but he gave credit to your dad for being that dependable Terry and the person that once they got inside, you know, a chance to score touchdowns, his hands were reliable. His feet were reliable. He was going to make the big play for the Irish. Your dad took over the Notre Dame program as coach in 1954 at a very young age, right after the Frank Leahy legendary years. Big squad, big list of returning lettermen for Coach Brennan. Now he follows in Leahy's footsteps and the immortal Newt Rockney. So good luck, Terry. This book isn't necessarily so kind to Coach Leahy. Do you think that fighting Irish fans may have an issue with that? Uh, you know, they may. Uh, the reality is that my dad and, and frankly, he had a very, very, very respectful professional relationship as player and coach in their time. I think that uh, Coach Leahy had some bitterness after his departure from Notre Dame. And I think that, uh, unfortunately, my dad was the target of that for a few years. And so in this book, we find how his time, he had those battles with the administration. He was let go in 1958 after compiling a very respectable 32 and 18 college coaches would love to have that record now, you know, the way the, the, the game has changed and included a magical 1957 season that was highlighted by a win over Army and a 7-0 upset, some say upset of the century, over Bud Wilkinson's Oklahoma Sooners who had their 47-game winning streak snap. How much has Dad talked about the 1957 season and the game against the Oklahoma Sooners? Um, not all that much, surprisingly. As I said, he's a forward-looking guy, not a backward-looking guy. We had, to, we had to spend a lot of time pulling a lot of this information out of him in writing the book. Uh, we finally got him to tell us about the defense he used against them, which was really the key to victory. Uh, and he, 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 it's funny watching a 90 at the time, 91 year old man describe what he was doing on the sidelines when he was in his late twenties, but he, he basically, the defense would come out in its standard five, four setup. Then he'd either put his hands on his right hip or his left hip to call for a stunt to either the left or right side, which gave them an eight man front, which shut down the, the, the Oklahoma running game, which was un, unparalleled at the time and, and a highly scoring offense. That forced them into throwing the ball, which they were not comfortable doing. And uh, any coach knows if you can get the other team to do what you want them to do and take them out of their game, you're, you've got an advantage. And they pressed that advantage to the end and won the game. And, and they dominated the game. When you look at the statistics of that game, they're included in the book. What a tribute because Bud Wilkinson himself 
said that if he had to lose any game, it would be to the Fighting Irish and Terry Brennan respecting his coaching abilities. And you think about it, innovative approach to, you know, the shift on defense and, and how to have that. We hear all the time about the eight-man front now, but that wasn't necessarily something people thought about back then. Did he come up with that himself? I think it was a, a, probably a product of both himself and the assistant coaches. Uh, they had scouted Oklahoma heavily, and I think they had in mind uh, pulling a few surprises on Oklahoma in Norman that year. And to be honest, given the restrictions he was coaching under in terms of lack of scholarships versus an Oklahoma or a Michigan state, you had to be creative. If you'd, be, you'd get killed by somebody like Oklahoma or Michigan state. And I think uh, he described it as a crazy defense, but uh, it obviously worked. It certainly did. And it led to uh, a magical season, but a lot of people don't realize the next game, the Irish lost after having that huge upset of Oklahoma. Right. I know that you said dad doesn't talk <laughs> about a lot, but I would imagine that was probably very disappointing after a tremendous performance, but he knew going in, he, he knew about the size of, of Iowa. He knew that his teams mm-hmm. were on the light side. You know, when I think of Notre Dame, we always thought about the big bruising guys when we used to go watch them and that they maybe have been too slow because of their big guys. But during your dad's time coaching, the Irish, because of a lack of scholarships, did not have the size that some of these Big Ten schools had. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think, you know, not only did they not have the size, they didn't have the numbers as we were discussing. And, you know, with the academic requirements that were, you know, put down on Notre, on the football program, which I don't think anybody disagrees with, it was really just a lack of scholarships. You're going to have lesser, I think, people in some respects, because you're getting, you know, student athletes like my father, he would have been the prototypical student athlete that Father Hesburgh would have wanted on campus. I think really what, when you look at that November in 57, you know, you mentioned most college coaches would like to have my father's record. They wouldn't have wanted to have the schedules he played. Uh, it was not unusual to play half your schedule against ranked teams. And that those five weekends in November, which are mentioned in the book, they played number two, number three, number four, and number five on consecutive weekends. Now that was back when Notre Dame didn't go to bowl games, but they essentially played five bowl games in a row over that period of time. I think if you asked him, and I, I, I know he would say this, he wasn't counting on winning all those games. He was going to try to win them all, but that was a pretty tall order. And he probably had a, had a few discussions with Moose Krause, the athletic director about his scheduling, but that uh, those, that's what they played back then. They didn't go to bowl games and they played some of the toughest schedules around. Nobody today would play a schedule like that. They wouldn't be even mentioned in the same breath with the people making the college football playoff today if they did that. The 1956 season, prior to the, the comeback season of 1957, the Irish were 2-8, and eight, and that was really the only terrible season that the Irish had under Terry Brennan Sr. Right. But the bright spot was the golden boy, Paul Horning. And right. Paul Horning said that your dad was a great coach. So I know that has to make you smile, Terry. It does. And I, and he would say the same thing about uh, the late Paul Horning as well, who I had the pleasure of meeting a few times as well. And he was just an incredible guy, an incredible player, and a guy that, you know, my dad never had a problem with. He, he showed up every day, practice in every game, and he, was, he is what he is said to be. He was spectacular. I've always said I would have never won the Heisman Trophy had it not been at Notre Dame. Back in those days, it was so much different than the Heisman of today. There wasn't any hype. There were, actually, there, was a t- there wasn't one story about the Heisman Trophy until November. 
in the book a reference to, you might not have seen the golden boy in class so much, but you saw him in the huddle. I thought that was pretty funny because we all know about Paul Horning's antics through the years. He was just as much a character as he was a great running back. Also kind of, you know, lend itself to the legend uh, of Paul Horning. Uh, I saw Lombardi, the Broadway play that featured, uh, you know, the times when he had Paul Horning and uh, Jim Taylor as his running backs. It was a powerful show. And Mm -hmm. uh, Dan Laria played Vince Lombardi. But you kind of got the idea that even though Paul had his moments, everybody still loved this guy. And I guess your dad did too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think he, he would tell you that, unfortunately, that was Leahy's last recruiting class of 56. And there wasn't much left of it except for Paul Horning. Uh, but yeah, he, the accolades that everybody uh, showers on Paul Horning are the same ones my father would give. And, and, and Vince Lombardi, by the way, was a very good friend of his. Uh, so they, they talked football every summer so they uh for for paul to put my dad in the same category with vince lombardi is high praise you were born pretty early on in his uh obviously in his coaching career what do you remember about his whole time at notre dame and then his broadcasting booth days with lindsey nelson you know I, i remember flashbacks as a young child i mean i was two when he was named head coach and i was six when he was fired uh but i remember things like uh he wasn't around much I mean, it was a lot of recruiting, and he was recruiting nationally when it was a lot harder to get around the country than it is today. Um, for a long time, and it's mentioned in the book, I thought he was living in the front hall closet because our TV was backed up to that. You know, a lot of times I probably saw more on TV than I did at home. Uh, I remember my mom asking me to go to a Notre Dame pep rally, which was a big deal. And I went to this thing at probably the age of four or five, and it was in their old gym, which was a snake pit. And, looked like a steam room with the, it was just, it was not a very comfortable place with too many people in a small space. And uh, I was unimpressed. (laughs) And and, and my mother reminded me of that, that uh, I was kind of a pain that evening. But uh, in any event, I I remember more in his broadcasting days. And I remember we had a, uh, we lived in Whitefish Bay, which was a suburb of Milwaukee. So I'm I'm seeing Rocky Blyer back here. He played at Appleton Xavier uh, before he went to Notre Dame. And um, he'd have a, a, a lot, just all the sports information stuff would come continually to the house and he'd just throw it in the, in the uh, window seat in the living room. And then whatever game was coming up, he'd dig through the window seat and find all the SID stuff and uh, start studying for the game. And uh, I went to a couple of the games, got to sit in the press box a few times, got to be on the field and uh, meet some of the coaches. And, and Lindsey Nelson was, he was terrific. Uh, just a, an amazing class act. Uh, I am, I have been a New York Mets fan since 1966. So, oh boy. uh, yeah, he's, and he wrote a, he wrote a really funny book called backstage at the Mets, which is worth reading. He, uh, the stories he would tell about uh, Casey Stengel, for instance, are just, you know, you, you are there, you, you just laugh out loud. And, uh, I can't believe he would sit through those games every single game when they were losing 115, 120 games, but he did. Hello, everybody. This is Lindsay Nelson at Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles, California, welcoming you to another doubleheader. Today, the Mets meet the Los Angeles Dodgers here at Dodger Stadium. Ralph Kiner, Bob Murphy, and I are on hand to bring you every bit of the action. Yeah, and but when he was doing Notre Dame highlights, the Irish were good because uh, mm-hmm. I remember how Notre Dame could pull off the, the upsets, and uh, he was doing the Notre Dame highlight show uh, and that's where I was exposed to Lindsey Nelson's wonderful voice and demeanor. 
not even realizing that, you know, he was a part of the Mets big broadcast team that they had and, and a, a legendary announcer at the time. You mentioned your mom, uh, Mary Louise Kelly, known as Kel Brennan. Right. lost her many years ago. What, mm-hmm. has, what was the relationship like? It seems like it was a wonderful relationship, according to the book. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, she, what she did in her early 20s to raise four kids with, you know, the head coach of Notre Dame running around the country is nothing short of amazing. I think uh, no one would wish that on anyone today. And she did it, as I mentioned in the book, and my dad mentions it, with grace and charm. I mean, she, she not only did it, she did it well. And, uh, and we're the beneficiaries of that today. And the book has been dedicated not only to the memory of your mom, but the, the entire family there. The book is extremely interesting because it really covers all of Notre Dame football from the mm-hmm. Leahy days, even the Rockney days, all the way through, filled with information about the rivalries with USC and Michigan State and some of the great teams. It just doesn't focus on your dad's time. It really sets the stage and, and is a comparison of coaches throughout the years, too, and right. how some were treated and some you know, got maybe a, a better rap than others. For your dad, explain to our audience that when he took over, the scholarships were reduced from what mm-hmm. Frank Leahy had, and therefore he was at this disadvantage. And for some, no one would know this because all they care about, the Notre Dame faithful at that time, after having those wonderful 1946 and 47 teams, was winning. And mm-hmm. World War II was one of the reasons why the Irish were so powerful during the years, along with Army and Navy. But when your dad took over, Things changed, and Notre Dame changed its requirements. Please explain to us what happened. Well, I think Father Hesburgh had the right idea. He wanted to improve the academic standing of Notre Dame, and he was ultimately successful in doing that. For some reason, he thought de-emphasizing football would aid in that uh, reputation improvement. And in reality, it it didn't. And I think they realized that in 1964, when ERA took over, they, they switched back to, you know, scholarships. The admissions process was a little less rigorous. The letter of intent was in place, which is something my dad worked very hard for because you could sign a kid and he wouldn't show up in September. And now you lost that scholarship. It's not like today where you replaced him and you had 20, you know, one more the next year. It was just gone. And uh, the academic requirements were strict. Uh, I think the other things that hurt were the lack of tr- the inability to take transfer students and the inability to redshirt. So you're really operating under sort of Ivy League rules with some scholarships. That would be the only difference. And the, and the other side of the coin is there were no NCAA restrictions on scholarships. So a Michigan State shows up in South Bend with, you know, 120 guys on scholarship. Oklahoma could have 100 guys on scholarship. Today, everybody's got the same number. It's an even playing field. And um, so you, you were really asked to play a, a murderous schedule with, with one hand tied behind your back, if not two. You, you essentially had unilaterally disarmed the program, yet continued to play uh, an incredible uh, schedule that, as I said, nobody today would even want to consider. Um, so it was difficult. I think you had to be real creative. You had to be real smart. And, and fortunately, my dad is both. And he had a lot of experience playing the game. So he, he knew what to do. But if you don't have the numbers, as you mentioned in his postmortem, 1956, you can't play major college football with a sophomore team. It just doesn't work. Uh, and as I said, Paul Horning is one of the few seniors on that team, but they, he did a good job of getting him ready with playing time in 56 for the outcome that he got in 57 and 58. 
it's interesting because as you talk about your dad, I think mm-hmm. about my dad and the fact that when you think about that tough schedule, that's mm-hmm. what I think my dad loved about Notre Dame football mm-hmm. was that yeah. every week there was somebody gunning for the Irish and that there were great teams coming in so much. Uh, I went to Penn state. My dad would always say, you know, Penn state back in the day had very easy schedules. They don't anymore. But at that time right. it didn't match up to what Notre Dame was doing, you know, through the years. And your dad was right in the middle of that having to do with it. People have always referred to your dad as a gentleman and a person who knew the game. Well, mm-hmm. Where did he get that from? Was it from Leahy? Was it just the fact that he was a good student of the game? Well, I think the, he got his reputation as a gentleman from my grandfather and grandfather and grandmother. That's that's really where it came from. And, and having known both of them before they passed away, you could see you didn't mess around with either one of them. And uh, and they had six children and most and much like our family, it was four boys, two girls. And uh, if you're going to hold hold the four rambunctious boys down you got to set some rules and some uh, boundaries and uh, he, he was the product of those rules and boundaries as are we because uh, he he was no different with us as was my mother um, so I think um, his demeanor was was cast back then in his youth with my grandparents and I think he he's always was a good student I think when we were in school the first question about what we were doing was our grades and what we got on a quiz and what we got on a test or a paper. And then he, t- then he say, okay, what happened at practice today? Or how'd the game go? It was, or the track meet, whatever it might be, but it was forced first and foremost for academics. And uh, so, yeah, he was a student of just about everything he did and, uh, and a very intelligent guy. Your grandfather and your uncle Jim played football at Notre Dame too. That they did. Your dad maybe wanted to talk more about his brother's accolades at Notre Dame and in high school than himself. He just yeah. seems to be that kind of person who I guess now I, I understand more, Terry, why your dad maybe didn't want to write this book because he didn't want to talk about himself so much. I, I would agree with you. We, we had to pull it out of him with, you know, it was painful at times. He said, no, dad, you got I, I made him diagram that Oklahoma defense. And he kept saying, nah, it's, nobody cares about this. I said, nah, I think they're going to care about this. Promise me. Uh, so, yes, he's, he's, a, he's a very humble guy. Um, <clears throat> I always describe most of these guys that played in these teams, like talking to Johnny Lujak, talking to Paul Horning. These guys that actually did it are much different than the fans that watch them. They like to brag and talk and everything else. These guys are very humble guys. They know that it was a tough slog. They know it was a tough game. They know the other team was pretty good, but they just worked a little harder and beat them. It wasn't like they just showed up and, and uh, the other team ran out the tunnel. It's, uh, they, were, they were very humble, accomplished people, in the, but it was nothing to brag about. I, my, I always kid my dad. I said, where, where are your 1946 and 1947 championship rings? He goes, rings? What does anybody need a ring for? And so now you get them for grade school championships. So it's a whole different ball game. That football that's in the case behind you in the acrylic case there. What oh, is yeah. that? What's that about? That is the 1958 Navy Notre Dame game that they won. I think four, 40 to 20 on November 1st, 1958 is one of his uh, close to the, his last game coaching. Uh, and it's signed by the entire team and the coaching staff. And my mother gave me that. What a special football that is. Yeah. I'm sure that uh, 
that will, wow. Imagine the memories that are put into that football, not only the players. Your, your dad's last recruiting class was unbelievable. He mm-hmm. had Nick Bonacotti mm-hmm. and Myron Patios and, and the, the other names escaping me. That, well, you got uh, Daryl LaMonica was. Daryl LaMonica is, is, is the other. All had great right. NFL careers. And yet <clears throat> his successor said he was not left with good players. Uh, <laughs> Joe Kuharik, who is a very controversial figure in sports, also coached the Philadelphia Eagles, but he took over for your dad and pretty much regarded as the worst coach in Notre Dame history. The record would indicate that. Um, you know, it's funny when, when you, uh, you look at his appointment, and I think that goes back to my father's being fired as well. You know, Father Hesburgh was an academic, a scholar, and really did a wonderful thing for Notre Dame improving their academic standing. And he was a good administrator, but he turned most of the athletic program over to, to Edmund P. Joyce. And Father Hesburgh knew he wasn't an athlete. I think the problem with Father Joyce was he thought he was. And oftentimes, uh, Moose Krause wasn't in the, the picture. He, he went around him, undermined him. Uh, Moose was an All-American in basketball and football at Notre Dame and coached under Leahy. I mean, he knew, he knew a thing or two about playing there and coaching there. And he wasn't consulted in the termination or, or the hiring. And that's why I think you ended up with Joe Coherick. I think, uh, first of all, Moose wouldn't have recommended firing my father. And second of all, he wouldn't have recommended hiring Joe Coherick. But there it is. And it happened right before Christmas in 1958. Couldn't have been a worse time. You think that uh, a Catholic university would maybe think about uh, how it would impact the family. But the phone call came after Moose Krause had said to the public that pretty much, you know, that your dad was in good shape at Notre Dame and would, you know, would be able to coach for for many years. And as you said, Mm -hmm. Moose wasn't a part of that decision then. Right. And, he, and I'm almost certainly wasn't in hiring either. I know that uh, we even have uh, when my dad and and his friend Paul Biederman would go on to campus, uh, you know, they they actually visited Moose Krause at times uh, at the university. So they they had a, you know, through the guys that went up on this long bus trip to Notre Dame every year, they you know, you could interact with, with people much more than you, you could now. Right. Uh, I'll never forget when my dad, uh, when we were up there and Jerry Faust was going through his difficult times at Notre Dame and uh, he rolled down the window and my dad said, I wish you luck. And it was going a really tough time. And Jerry was really struggling at the time. And you could see that Jerry was so appreciative that somebody took the time to shake his hand. Hmm. The pressure at Notre Dame is more than any other school through the years. Everybody talks about it. The late analyst Bino Cook talked about it being, you know, the third most difficult job or something like that ever, <laughs> you know, to, to take. How do you think your dad at an early age, he, you know, he had that pressure. So he kind of had time to bounce back. And he certainly did with his life. Did the pressure, though, take a toll on your dad at certain points? You know, I was probably too young to observe that. I'm sure that there was plenty of pressure. I think where he had somewhat of an advantage and somewhat was prepared for it was playing in that that bubble. And it was you're out on the field playing both ways for four years against best of the best and knowing that you're expected to win every game. Um, he shouldn't have been, I don't think, well, he wasn't surprised that that pressure still existed when he took over as coach. I think his, his biggest concern was he didn't have the numbers. And so you're being asked to do something that's, uh, 
very difficult. And, uh, and as it turned out, we really couldn't do it. And I think the university realized that by 1964. And there's a 10-year there's a lag. Back, back in 1954, there was a 10-year lag in the Notre Dame schedule to get on it or off of it. And so 64 rolls around, and they finally got the schedule adjusted. And they're not as, as, as crazy as they were in the 50s and the 40s and before that. Um, and you got the numbers back. You know, so you, count, you combine helping the admissions office with scholarships and a, and a little bit easier schedule. And, uh, you know, I think if they just left my dad there for those 10 years instead of five, he'd have stepped into that as well and uh, done just fine. Yeah, you know, it's always a debate what what would happen if you let certain coaches go a uh, longer time, give them a little more grace period to work on, on their program. We've seen right. how some Notre Dame coaches didn't get that time. Others got way too much <laughs> as they went along, but we won't mention exactly who those might be. I think the most touching part of this book that has been put out by Loyola Press Though the odds be great or small, Notre Dame's 1957 comeback season and the year that changed college football is near the end where you talk about how during the pandemic, that's how current this book is, during the pandemic and in 2020, your dad has been receiving letters mm -hmm. from people all over the country <laughs> right. wishing him well and good health during the pandemic. That's a testament to your dad's wonderful career but more a testament to the person, I think, that through the years that this book really shows that the people who knew him well knew what an incredible man your dad is. And so at 93, I would imagine during this pandemic, not only has it been difficult for him, but those letters must have brought great joy. Oh, it did. It did. Um, you know, that he was in an independent living facility. You know, I, I called it a geriatric college dorm. <laughs> all sorts of activities, you know, friendly people, games and things, but they were locked up during the pandemic and he was alone. Some of these people are there with their wives or their spouses and he's not a technological guy. So it was the phone was about it. And so writing the letters made a lot of sense. And it was my, my brother, Chris's daughter, Colleen, my niece, who came up with the idea. And it was, um, it was a good idea. Very good idea. We were, for a while there, we were, they, they weren't going to take the letters in because nobody was touching things. And it was pretty mm -hmm. hairy, especially when you've got everybody there who's probably 80 plus years old. Um, but yeah, he very much appreciated it. I think you can tell that in the book. WNDU Television did a report about the letters back in 1991. Brennan has already received over 500 letters and counting. He's amazed that people of all ages and from different countries have sent him letters. I go back uh, 60 years, you know, so uh, and it, it, it was, uh, there's not many people around that were back then to watch me play. They, they've read the history books, so I guess, I guess they know all about me. And Brennan hopes the Irish faithful can continue to reach out with memories. They make you feel good. I got a, a, a bunch, of, bunch of letters, very, very thoughtful, very nice. One of your dad's players mentioned in this book uh, quite a bit is Chuck Lima. And uh, he's quoted a lot in the book, and he had great respect for your dad. Did you ever get a chance to, you know, have a long conversation with Chuck Lima? I didn't. That was uh, it was primarily uh, Bill did that. Bill Bill did a lot of that legwork to find those people. And how um, did that relationship develop? Bill kind of mentions it, you know, in the prologue. But how did you get him and your dad together? There was a, a there's an editor at Loyola Press, uh, Gary Jansen, who knew about Bill, 
and he thought he'd be a pretty good fit. And we, we sat down together and it was pretty obvious he was a good fit. Um, he's a, he's a, he's a Purdue guy, but he's a subway alum like you. And he, uh, he was very, he was just thrilled and his energy and his, uh, and his skills were, were very evident early on. He did a, he did a very good job. Person I've really ever had a conversation with of that group of people was Dick Seltzer. He actually offered me a scholarship to play football at Xavier when he was the head coach way back when. And we're talking about Bill Miners, who worked with your dad on mm-hmm. this book. One of the things that really jumped out about this book, you know, from this book, was that your dad at 175 pounds was coaching at Chicago Mount Carmel High School in Illinois. His teams won three city championships there. This was before he became head coach at Notre Dame. So you realize he was very young coaching high school. So there were players that maybe didn't give him the respect that he, you know, should have as a head coach. They weren't that much, uh, that much younger. He had a couple of players that were kind of on the rough side. He took them on as a boxer and uh, he got the better of them. Can you talk about that? Well, he'd be the best one to talk about it, but uh, (laughs) he, um, yeah, he was 20 years old when he, when he took over at Mount Carmel. My grandfather had to sign the contract. And it's also, he was 17 as a freshman at Notre Dame, so he didn't get drafted. So he had, and we always kid that he was redshirted in, uh, in, in kindergarten. He skipped kindergarten or nursery school, one of those. But he, um, yeah, he, he took these guys on. I think today he'd regret it. He might be in jail. You can't do that anymore, right? No, no, no. He, he, but I'll uh, let you describe what he did. Yeah, he, he, uh, they had challenged him uh, in his first year, and he was 20. They were 18, so there was a two-year difference. And he, they, they basically challenged him, and he accepted the challenge. And uh, they regretted it because they both ended up on the floor afterwards. Uh, and the, the Carmelite priests, you know, it was, it, I went to a Jesuit high school in the 60s. So you, you could do a lot of things in these high school, boy high school that you wouldn't even dream of doing today. And uh, they were fine with it. And the parents were fine with it, believe it or not. They, there was nobody complaining to the principal that the coach beat them up because they knew they were out of line. And it was, um, it, it was just a different era. Are you still a Notre Dame fan? You know, I probably wouldn't be considered a Notre Dame fan. Uh, I was up till about age six. And uh, after that, I, I uh, probably ceased paying attention. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I've been to game. The first time I was ever to a Notre Dame game is in my 20s because I was so young. I never would have taken a six-year-old to a game like that with a ticket so valuable. So, uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I would not describe myself as a Subway alum, put it that way. Should I be a Notre Dame fan? I think you're, you're anyone who likes Notre Dame, there's nothing particularly wrong with that. I think they're a fun place to, to go to a game and they're a fun, fun team to watch. And they've got a lot of tradition. There's, there's a lot there to be liked. Would you like to go back in time and have a conversation with Leahy, Father Hesburgh, Father Joyce, and uh, um, almost kind of give them a piece of your mind? No, I've, I've met Father Hesburgh. He's, he's a, he's a, as I said, he's a scholar and a, and a, and a, a very smart man. Uh, uh, I, I probably wouldn't care to, to be honest. I think that um, they, they made their decisions and uh, they're their decisions to live with. I'm not sure I'd convince them differently, to be honest with you. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what you're doing now, Terry. Actually, I'm, uh, I've been working for the Jesuits for the last 18 years. I had a very good career in, in the, what I call the real world, 
took a year off and got a master's degree in antebellum U.S. history from the University of Chicago, and I wanted to give back. And I spent uh, 14 years as the chief financial officer and chief operating officer of Loyola Academy, which is a Jesuit high school in Chicago. It's the largest Jesuit high school in the country. And for the last four and a half years, I've been the chief financial officer of Loyola Press and a board member. So um, I'm, that's what I've been doing is primarily just giving back for uh, some fortunate things that happened to me in the past. Do people still come up to you and say, Terry Brennan, you're, you're not the son of Terry Brennan, the coach at Notre Dame, are you? They usually ask me if I'm related to him, mm-hmm. but it, it still does happen, believe it or not. Uh, I can remember my first week of college, my freshman year, my roommate and I were here, you're meeting new people and, and people would say, are you any relation to the head football coach at Notre Dame? I said, yeah, it's my dad. And we'd have a little conversation. It must've happened. 15 times if it happened once in a period of about a week. And so my roommate turns to me and said, do you ever get tired of this? And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of used to it. And, and I said, and it's a hell of a lot better than being Al Capone Jr. <laughs> yeah, I could see that day. <laughs> right. Best day ever with dad. What was that? Oh boy. You know, there were, there actually were a lot of them. Uh, you know, one of the things I used to really enjoy doing with him is watching a game in live and in person with him because he sees so much that you and I would not even pick up, let alone watching it on TV pick up. I mean, he, he knows instantly, you know, he's, he's just got such a mind for the game and, and he's at such a elevated level of knowledge that, you know, he'll look at like something, Oh, that's the old Oklahoma something or other, but they're calling it something different today. He said, that's so old. It's new. He said, it's been used, been used for 40 years and somebody's given it a different name. And that used to be a lot of fun. I mean, he can't do that now. I mean, the last time I think I watched a live game with him, we were in the press box at, at Notre Dame, and I think it was the Northwestern game. And he's more of a fan now. So in other words, when you go to the, the games with him now, which we won't be doing anymore, but he would insist on leaving at the end of the third quarter to beat the traffic. So he's, he's not a fanatic. And uh, I can remember that particular game, Northwestern came back and beat Notre Dame. And we were just crossing over the Indiana-Illinois state line. We had clearly beaten the traffic. Uh, but yeah, those were, those were special times to, you know, that you, you cherish. It was, it was, he was really good at that. And, and you could tell why he was such a good player and a good coach. Well, we certainly send our best to your dad and sending him some healthy thoughts and hope that you have some, still some good conversations with your dad. Oh, yeah. We're sorry he couldn't join us on sports jam today, but we are thrilled to have you. And I, you know, if you bear with me, I want to dedicate this show to several people who love Notre Dame, uh, my father, Spike, and his good buddy and friend, Paul Biederman, who saw about 40-plus games in Notre Dame. Uh, every year, they'd go on this trip, on this bus trip. And uh, then later, my brother and I would uh, join on the bus trip. It was kind of our pilgrimage and kind of our time with our dad. And then our buddy, Chuck Trombetta, would join us. Uh, he was one of the people that would go on the trip. We lost dad and Chucky last year. Oh, I'm sorry and- to hear that. And Notre Dame games will never be the same for us. And finally, I want to dedicate this to uh, John Dubinetsky, who played for Notre Dame as a strong safety under Dan Devine and had a huge interception against Alabama in the 1975 Orange Bowl. Johnson, Jim, and I are radio colleagues and friends. And Terry Brennan used to live in Mendham, New Jersey. Terry Brennan Jr., you lived in Jersey. I was a New Jerseyan for a while, yes. 
I want to dedicate this show to your dad as well and to the to the memory of your mom and your family. It's been such a thrill to have you on the show. I know you're not an Irish fan anymore, but I got to say it for everybody else. Go Irish. And thanks, Terry Brennan Jr. for joining us and much success with your father's book. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Sports Jam is a WBGO Studios podcast. You can hear all the shows by going to wbgo.org slash sports jam. Find Sports Jam with Doug Doyle on iTunes or on the NPR list of podcasts. Thanks to all those old newsreel clips found on YouTube and WNDU Television for use of their report during this show. Thanks again to Terry Brennan Jr. and Loyola Press. Until our next Sports Jam session, I'll see you at the game. Don't forget to check out the other podcasts available from WBGO Studios like this one. This week on the Checkout Podcast, we gallop with nine horses, an acoustic chamber trio with ambitions of being an electric orchestra. We talk to its founders, composer and mandolinist Joe Brent and violinist Sarah Caswell with me, Simon Rettner. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.